Amen. Thank you, Janny family. And uh, please turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Mark 8, verse 34. Uh, I will confess to you that where I'm taking you today, Mark 8, 34, is a bit of a strange uh, passage for a Resurrection Sunday sermon, but I've chosen it for two reasons. And the first is, we've actually already looked at the resurrection during Palm Sunday and also, to a lesser extent, during our Good Friday service. But also, the reason I'm taking you here is because what Jesus teaches in this passage is crucial for the salvation of our souls. It's crucial to the good news of the gospel. You see, according to Scripture, God has not been silent. He's spoken. He's revealed Himself, and He's revealed His law. And even those who haven't read His law from Scripture have the law of God written on their hearts with their consciences bearing witness to what is right and wrong, but we knowingly break that law. And because we break that law, we have a debt of wrongdoing, of sin against God, and it's also appointed unto mankind once to die, and after that, the judgment, and there will be a day, a final reckoning for us with God where we will be judged fairly and equitably and objectively according to the rubric of His law, and all of us have a debt of sin we can never repay. And so we need salvation. We need really forgiveness. And that's what Christ purchased on the cross when He died voluntarily for our sins and then rose again the third day. And understanding that gospel, that good news of the salvation we can have in Christ is crucial for our souls, but there's more to say about it than just the death and resurrection of Jesus, which is why I'm taking you uh, to where we are in Mark. Now, before we read this paragraph that I'm taking you to, I want to give you a little bit about the historical context. The context is that Jesus is going to speak these words approximately a year before He goes to Jerusalem to die on the cross and rise again. And what He's done is He's been uh, ministering in Galilee, but He's taken His disciples north to a, a, a Greek town called Caesarea Philippi, uh, and for a time, basically for a retreat, for a time to pour into them and rest from ministry. And it's at this point when Jesus asks, you know, who do the crowds say that I am, but who do you say I am? And Peter gives his famous confession, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And in response to Peter's confession, uh, Jesus knew it was time to tell the twelve for the first time, what's eventually going to happen to him. And so he gives this prophecy in Mark 8, 31. Uh, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man, uh, Son of Man is a messianic title from Daniel, the book of prophet Daniel in the Old Testament. It was Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself uh, in the third person. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So this is the first time Jesus has told His disciples what's going to happen to Him. The leadership of the nation would assess Jesus, and they would assess His claims, and they would willfully reject Him. And not only would they reject Him, they would kill Him. But perhaps the most important thing communicated in this prophecy is that Jesus came on a mission, and His mission was necessary. He says, the Son of Man must suffer many things. He has to suffer in order to give His life as a ransom that purchases people from the penalty and slavery of their sins. But when Peter hears this prophecy from Jesus, Peter's offended. And so, Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes Him. Uh, in return, 
Uh, Jesus is offended that Peter's offended and rebukes Peter and tells Peter that he's not setting his mind on the things of God, but on the interests of man. And then Jesus, uh, after confronting Peter, He turns, and in an extraordinary and shocking way, He tells the crowds, and now us who are listening in on the conversation, how He expects us to respond to His death and resurrection. What Jesus said back then, the Holy Spirit is now saying as we read Jesus' words, and the essence of what Jesus is going to tell us is this, if you want the benefit of my mission, if you want the spiritual benefit of my death on the cross, it will cost you everything, but it is worth it. Let's read what Jesus says beginning in Mark 8, verse 34. And He summoned the crowd with His disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after Me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for My sake and the gospel's sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The first thing we need to say about this paragraph is that it's honestly the antithesis of a lot of what is out there in popular Christian, uh, a popular Christian gospel that is making its way through evangelical churches today. The British evangelical pastor John John Stott writes this, the Christian landscape is strewn with the wreckage of derelict, half-built towers, the ruins of those who began to build but were unable to finish. For thousands of people still ignore Christ's warning and undertake to follow Him without first pausing to reflect on the cost of doing so. The result is the great scandal of Christendom today, so-called nominal Christianity. In countries like ours in which Christian civilization has spread, large numbers of people have covered themselves with a decent but thin veneer of Christianity. They've allowed themselves to become somewhat involved, enough to be respectable, but not enough to be uncomfortable. Their religion is a great soft cushion It protects them from the hard unpleasantness of life while changing its place and shape to fit their convenience. I agree with John Stott's observation. That's exactly the kind of gospel taught in many churches today. Uh, Raise your hand, pray a prayer, walk an aisle, write your name in the front of your Bible, um, and you're in and you have your eternal fire insurance card. But contrast that with what Jesus says in the paragraph we just read. His words to the crowd are revolutionary and candidly a little bit scary, and they're still revolutionary when read out loud today. First of all, notice to whom Jesus spoke these words, verse 34. He summoned the crowd with His disciples. So Jesus spoke this, I I am interpreting it, as to a uh, spiritually mixed audience. There were the crowds who were interested to hear what He had to say, but they still weren't committed. And then there were the disciples who had left their careers behind to follow Him uh, during His earthly ministry. And I glean from that that this message is important both for those who are already committed to following Jesus and for those who are willing to hear about Jesus but haven't made the commitment yet. He also says, if anyone wishes to come after me. 
Now, in the case of the disciples, coming after Jesus meant literally following Him around uh, Israel during His ministry. They had to leave their careers, their families behind. But Jesus also uses this language metaphorically in other moments, in other parts of the gospel, to just speak of His call on everybody to come and be a student of His, a pupil of His, who learns from Him and then obeys and serves Him. He says in uh, Luke, for example, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own family, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Uh, In the Hebraic way of mind, in the ancient Near East, hating didn't quite mean exactly what we think of it to mean in the English-speaking world today. We know in other places, right, Jesus commands us to love our family, right? Uh, Husbands are supposed to love their wives, wives are supposed to love their husbands. The idea of hatred here, though, is that if there was ever a time when you had to choose between being loyal to Jesus or being loyal to family, you would choose Jesus. That's what he's getting at here. Uh, Jesus is calling for people to give their allegiance and loyalty to Him. That's what it means to follow Him. And this is important to emphasize because there's a mistaken notion out there among some Christians that you get saved from your sins uh, and you get saved from the coming judgment by accepting Jesus as your Savior, and then you continue to live however you want to live, and at some future date, you accept Jesus as Lord, and then you become a lot more spiritually mature uh, and grow in your faith. But that's not what Jesus or the apostles taught. In the New Testament, becoming a disciple of Jesus is the same as we would say in the vernacular as getting saved. For instance, in Matthew 28, Jesus says, "'Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I commanded you.'" So, the message and the mission is to make followers of Jesus, baptize them, but then teach them to obey what Jesus commands. To come after Jesus or to be saved, or to receive eternal life, or to accept Jesus. Uh, That's all language in the New Testament. That is all speaking of one spiritual event. When someone comes to Jesus, they become a disciple. There's no such thing as a Christian who isn't a disciple who follows Jesus. And in our context, Jesus is saying that anyone who wants to come to Him for salvation, anyone, anyone who wants to be His disciple, has to do three things. Verse 34, deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So, we could say it this way. This is a very important clarification to make. Salvation is all of grace. We don't earn our salvation or achieve it or merit it by do-goodery or the keeping of laws. That's not how we attain eternal life. But we also need to say that God's free saving grace is conditional. Now, When I say that, when I say that His free, unmerited saving grace is conditional, that will sound to some of you in here like I'm being contradictory, like I'm preaching to you about dry water or a short skyscraper, you know, just like, what's going on with pastor? But just hear me out. Hear out uh, what I mean about the condition of this free grace, receiving it. Uh, In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, blessed are those, or and you could translate blessed also as happy. Happy are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
The Greek word Jesus uses there for poor was used in the Greek-speaking world not to speak of someone who was a day laborer or uh, who, was, who worked manual labor. Uh, in our context, maybe we could say someone who, um, who, who makes minimum wage. That's not what Jesus means when He uses that word poor. That word poor was used in Greek <coughs> excuse me, for a beggar who had some kind of severe physical handicap whereby he could not do any useful labor and was reduced to begging for money. In fact, the Greeks had a picture for it. It was for someone in the village or the town who had fallen on such hard times because of their physical injury or handicap or illness that they were, they were kind of ashamed for their former acquaintances to see them, and so they would cover their face as they held out their hand for money. That's what Jesus is speaking of, but He applies it not to financial poverty, but poverty of spirit. And so the picture then is this. It's of a person who declares spiritual bankruptcy. It's a person who admits they don't deserve to enter into the kingdom of God in the first place, and they're throwing themselves on the mercy of God. So when Jesus spoke these words now that we come to in Mark 8, the condition back in the Sermon on the Mount is that you declare spiritual bankruptcy. You admit that you're a spiritual beggar and you don't deserve entrance into the kingdom in the first place. That was the condition for receiving this free grace in the Sermon on the Mount. Now in Mark 8, we have three conditions that must uh, be met for a person to receive the free, unmerited, unearned salvation God offers. The first condition Jesus uh, speaks of is to deny self. Now, that Greek word means to renounce, to refuse to associate with, to sever relationship with self. Denying the self means letting go of self-determination, dying to your own agenda, dying to being your own master and the captain of your own fate. If you're going to follow Jesus, Invictus can't be your favorite poem, right? I'm the master of my own fate, that whole thing, the the captain of my own fate. That can't be uh, your attitude if you're going to come to Jesus. If you're going to come to Jesus for salvation, you have to repent of this attitude that's very natural. It comes naturally to all of us. Even those of us who are following Jesus, still, it, it still can rear its ugly head from time to time. You have to repent of this attitude that says, it's my life and I'll live it however I want to. You have to repent from that and say, no, I'm going to live the way Jesus calls me. to. It's not my life anyway. God created me, and He owns me. And then He paid an enormous price to purchase me from my slavery to sin. I've been bought twice over by God. Uh, that's the attitude you have to have. So, no one who is unwilling to deny the self or the modern project of following the self and its desires Uh, No one who is unwilling to do that can legitimately claim to be a follower of Jesus. R.T. France explains it this way, this kind of self-denial is on a different level entirely than giving up chocolates for Lent. It's not the denial of something to the self, it's the denial of the self itself. Denying self is explained in other passages in the New Testament with the idea of repentance. Um, When I first came here to pastor. Harlan was kind enough to give me uh, his commentaries by the 19th century Baptist John Brodus, and Brodus explains denying self this way. The follower of Jesus 
will not have self for his ruler or his aim. He must resolve to live not for pleasure, but for usefulness, not for inclination, but for duty, not for self, but God. To be a genuine follower of Christ means you have to renounce self. The second condition for salvation is this, you must take up your cross. And in Luke's, uh, Luke gives us in his gospel a parallel account of this exact same conversation. And the one detail we pick up from Luke that he adds to Mark's account is that Jesus didn't just say, you have to pick up your cross and follow me. Jesus said, you have to pick up your cross daily. You have to do this daily. Now, in the church, there has been a lot of, how shall I say it, sentimental things uh, said about what it means here to pick up your cross. Uh, and let me assure you, Jesus is not speaking metaphorically here about being willing to bear up under some trial or difficulty in your life. Your cross is not a, a chronic illness, as bad as that is, or a wayward child, or your difficult spouse. You see, the Jews in Jesus' day, they were very familiar with what Jesus meant. The Romans regularly crucified Jews as a deterrent to rebellion. So, remember, when we interpret the Bible, we have, one of the questions we have to start with is, well, wh what did these words mean to the original audience that heard them? Speaking of some trial in our lives as a cross we have to bear, that's an English, that's like a modern English-speaking thing to do. That's not what the Jews would have understood when they heard the cross. What Jesus is doing here, then, is clarifying what He means when He, has, when he says you have to deny yourself. You have to renounce yourself to the point, possibly, of even death, even renouncing your own life. Paul is a good example of this. In the book of Acts, he tells Christians in Caesarea, I'm ready not only to be bound, uh, he was going to be arrested, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, you may hear that and say, well, yeah, of course, Paul said that. Paul was brave and Paul was an apostle, but I'm not Paul. And they're like, well, okay, yeah, you're not an apostle, but Jesus calls all who follow him to be willing to die if necessary uh, in order to follow him and be faithful to him, uh, even if it means being killed. And there are many ordinary Christians down through the history of the church who have been willing to go to death for the sake of Christ, not renouncing Him or the gospel. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, we read of Christians yet future to our time uh, who, quote, did not love their life even when faced with death. It appears to me from church history and from contemporary Christian experience that the majority of those who follow Jesus aren't going to be killed for their faith, but some are, and Jesus calls all to be willing to die to follow Him. And Jesus also calls those who would follow Him to accept the shame of following Him. In Luke 6, Jesus says, "'Blessed are you when men hate you and cancel you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man.'" Uh, this is really important. We need to talk about this, okay? So, uh, we don't live in a shame and an honor-shame culture uh, like many other more traditional cultures in the world. If anything, the, many of the honor-shame cultures would look at us and say, we're kind of like a shameless culture, okay? But shame is nevertheless part of it. Let me, let me give you just a few illustrations of what Christians face. Okay, so if you live in a predominantly Muslim country, 
okay? One of the things that is, is said to those who would convert to Christ is this. Look, if you're poor, and because you're poor, you steal. You steal bread because you've got to have something to eat. It's understandable why you stole, okay? We understand that. And there's no shame in it, especially if you were doing it to help take care of your family. But you do have to go to jail. You, you have to pay the price for what you did. And if uh, you commit a crime of passion, let's say that your wife cheated on you with another man, and then you murdered that other man, that's understandable, okay? It, it's not totally shameful. We understand why you did it. But you can't murder other people. You do have to pay the penalty. But if you would become a Christian, that is shameful. How could you betray your family that way? How could you betray your country that way? By following, by doing something that we don't believe in and renounce, you should be ashamed of yourself if you would become a Christian. And so what happens is the other side shames the Christians. Increasingly, even though we're not an honor-shame culture, that's happening in our own nation, right? A generation ago, if you were on a secular university campus and you're a Christian, you're the village idiot for being a Christian because you, because you believe in this creation thing and, and not evolution. But where is the culture moving now? If you're a Christian, you should be ashamed of yourself because you believe in a book that's immoral and against human flourishing. It, you believe in a book that if you just read through it, it's obvious to everybody that it stands opposed to the sexual revolution, and you should be ashamed of yourself for wanting to deny people who they are and the expression of their desires. But Jesus would come along and say to those who want to follow Him, you have to be willing to put up with the shaming you're going to receive if you're going to follow Him. Following Christ may mean that you lose connections with family and friends. It may mean that you lose a promotion in your career. But to follow Jesus, you have to be willing uh, to give these things up for His sake. John Bunyan was an uh, English pastor in the 1600s. He wrote the famous story, The Pilgrim's Progress. I know many of you have read it. And uh, when he taught his people about the cost of following Christ, this is how he put it to his own generation. This is what he heard Christ saying, quote, "'Following me is not like following some of their masters. The wind sits always on my face, and the foaming rage of the sea of this world and the proud and lofty waves thereof do continually beat upon the sides of the boat that myself, my cause, and my followers are in. He, therefore, who will not run hazards and that is afraid to venture a drowning,' let him not set foot in this vessel. You must deny yourself, take up your cross daily. And then third, in this passage, Jesus says, follow me. Now, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, we could say it a couple ways. First of all, it means you leave your own path to follow uh, the path that He wants you to walk in. You submit your will to His. Uh, he becomes your master, and you serve His interest. You put His kingdom first before your life plans. Um, a good illustration of this would be the following prayer from the missionary David Livingston. Uh, he prayed, Lord, send me anywhere, only go with me. Lay any burden on me, only sustain me. Sever any ties, but the ties that bind me to your service and to your heart. Following Jesus would mean being able to pray a prayer like that and sincerely mean it from the heart. 
But following Jesus doesn't just mean following His will for your life story. There's something even more just basic and straightforward and simple to understand in terms of what it means to follow Jesus. Primarily, it means you're willing to obey His commands as recorded in the New Testament for us. what, What it means is you make the Bible the most oft-read, oft-studied, most life-shaping, life-influencing, life-rearranging book in your entire library, and you actually obey His commands. That's what it means to follow Jesus. So, Jesus demands that if you follow Him, you have to value Him more than you value your own will and desires. Denying yourself, picking up your cross daily, and following Jesus are three conditions for salvation. Salvation is free, but it will cost you everything in the sense of giving up your own will and denying the self. So, if the cost is that high, why should we pay it? Why, why would anybody be willing to pay such a high price? Well, salvation is a numbers game, and if you crunch the numbers, you'll see that the cost is worth it because, verse 35, this is the only way to save your soul. Look at what Jesus says in verse 35. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Those who become disciples of Jesus have to lose their lives in the sense that they turn from a living for self and for their comfort-loving, pleasure-seeking, entertainment-addicted ways. And if you choose to deny yourself and uh, excuse me, let me say it this way. If you choose not to deny self and do your own thing, you can enjoy uh, many wonderful pleasures in the present, but you'll lose your soul forever. On the other hand, if you're willing to lose your self-focused, self-absorbed life to follow Jesus, you'll save your soul forever. The missionary Jim Elliot summed it up this way, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Denying self to follow Christ is worth it. And it's also worth it because everything else is worthless in comparison with your soul. Look at verse 36. Jesus says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And what will a man give in exchange for his soul? See, if you could have everything you wanted, uh, let's make it material in this illustration. Uh, The nicest house, the best food, the most lavish vacations. You could be as wealthy as Solomon, and uh, you could buy anything you want, and whatever you wanted, the price tag was no issue, uh, and you didn't withhold from yourself anything money could buy, but when you died, you lost your soul for eternity. That would still be a fool's bargain. You see, your body is passing away, but your ever-living, never-dying, eternally conscious soul will live forever. Uh, And this issue of discipleship really then is a matter of profit and loss. It's a question of whether or not you're going to invest your life or waste your life. And notice the severe warning Jesus gives in verse 37, for what will a man give in exchange for his soul? All the world's goods can't compensate for the loss of your soul. Once you've spent your life, you can't buy it back. Once you've spent your life, you can't buy a do-over. So, denying self to follow Jesus is a tough decision, yes. It's, It's a difficult decision to make, but it's worth it because it's the only way to save your soul and because everything else is worthless in comparison to your eternal soul. But not, that's not all. There's one more reason the high cost of following Jesus is worth it. It's in verse 
38, it's worth it because Jesus will one day be your judge. He says, verse 38, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. There is a way in which those who reject the demands of Jesus actually prove that they're ashamed of Jesus or that they don't think He's worth it because uh, they've counted the cost and decided that He's just not that valuable. They don't love Him. They don't find Him to be satisfying. They are spiritually adulterous. Uh, So, adultery, spiritual adultery is like a metaphor in the Bible for idolatry, loving and worshiping something else other than the Creator. And that could be a god, but it could also be created things like money and romantic love and achievement and power. It could be all kind of popularity, but whatever it may be, the pursuit of those other things is something that a person values more than becoming a student of Jesus, and in the end, Jesus will judge them. In the end, what actually happens is Jesus responds to us in the same way that we respond today to these demands that He come, that we come and follow Him. And so, the cost of following Jesus is high. And I think Christians, when we try to share the gospel, when we try to influence other people towards Christianity, we need to be honest about that. We need to be upfront about that. The cost of following Jesus is high. Let's, let's not hide that from people. Uh, let's not treat the gospel like a product where we advertise all the good benefits and we try and hide the price tag. That's not being honest. That's not the way Jesus dealt with the gospel or the apostles. And so, brothers and sisters, when we share the gospel with others, let's be honest about the cost of following Jesus. It is a high cost, but it's worth it. Now, as a pastor, I assume there are uh, various people who are with us this morning, especially for a Resurrection Sunday service. And uh, if you're someone here who's already a follower of Jesus, uh, I think this passage is a good reminder for you and I today um, because it reminds us of how our Christian life began, and it reminds us of the fact that the rules of the game haven't changed. We still have to pick up our cross daily. Um, And because Christ died and rose again and will return, we still choose to follow Him, right? Because we would admit, we would still admit we're spiritual beggars and we want the kingdom of heaven for ourselves, we choose to still confess we're beggars, to still confess we're spiritually bankrupt, and to pick up our cross and follow Jesus. Though the conditions Christ gives seem hard, and certainly they're repulsive to our culture, because the whole point in the culture nowadays is that the self is a big project. You look inside and find whatever desires are in there and what's true for you, and then you try to make the whole rest of the world celebrate you for it. And, and now I'm saying deny the self, right? Deny the self to follow Jesus. This is repulsive to our culture, but as believers, brothers and sisters, we still think this is worth it. In fact, we think this is the deal of the century, or the deal of an eternity, I should say. Uh, we think this is the deal of an eternity because we gain our souls. But it's not enough to just leave it at that. You see, if you claim to follow Christ, this is also a good time to examine your faith in light of the conditions Jesus laid down. I say this because millions of people call themselves Christians who are just cultural Christians. 
They still live however they want to live with no regard to what God says. They don't pick up their Bible and study what Jesus teaches or live according to how He directs. Uh, They live however they want, Monday through Saturday, uh, and then maybe come on Sunday to a worship service at a church. And I'm concerned that they're self-deceived. So let me ask you, uh, brother, sister, can you honestly say you've denied yourself taken up your cross and followed Jesus. Not perfectly. No, the Bible's also clear that no Christian performs that perfectly. There are still times when we lay down our cross to do our own thing, right? There are times when we don't follow Jesus, we follow the desires of our own wandering hearts. That still happens. But have you made the commitment to follow Jesus, and is there an increasing frequency of obeying His commands in your life? Uh, If you want the salvation Christ purchased on the cross 1,993 years ago, by my reckoning, uh, you have to deny yourself and follow Him. Uh, If you've joined us this morning, and it's because a a family member roped you into coming, and you would make, you, you make absolutely no claim to follow Jesus. You're even, you're sitting there and you're like, man, how long do sermons go in this denomination? He just keeps going up there. Uh, If that's you this morning, uh, then uh, you probably know uh, intuitively that it's my job as a pastor to invite you to follow Jesus. And I want to do that, but I do want to make sure that I challenge you, before you make the commitment to follow Jesus, count the cost. Uh, Read one of the gospel accounts about what Jesus says so you understand what you're getting yourself into before you sign up to follow Him. Though the sacrifice of Jesus uh, is, uh, through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, God is willing to forgive you of all the evil you've ever done. But the reconciled relationship you have with Him, that relationship happens on His terms, not on your own terms. Jesus uh, won't be made into a God of your own making. You can't craft a Jesus of your own making by cutting out sections of uh, the gospel accounts with a razor blade and editing so that you get the Jesus that you want. Uh, God gives the wonderful gift of prayer. He loves to answer the prayers of His people, but prayer doesn't exist for you to make God into the errand boy of all your wandering desires, and He refuses to be that for you. It's not on His agenda to give you your best life now because He's working on an agenda to give you your best life in eternity future, in the new heavens, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. And so, I would just say to you, uh, I believe that following Jesus is worth it, but you need to count the cost before you make the commitment to follow Him. And probably one of the best things you could do to count the cost, if you're curious, if you're interested at all in who Jesus is and following Him, just read one of the gospel accounts in the Bible. You can read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Read any one of them, and you'll see who Jesus is, who He claimed to be, and what He taught. Uh, And that would be the best way for you to count the cost if you're interested at all in following Him. Well, let's pray.